Well, hello. Welcome to Jules Says. I'm Jules, Julie. If you have anything you'd like to share with me, you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Jules Says. Or email me at jewelsays at gmail.com. J-E-W-E-L-S says at gmail.com. Well, this week, some of the restrictions in Ontario are being lifted. I'm very happy about that. I'm sure a lot of people are happy about that. A lot of businesses will be happy about it. The one thing that's remaining so far, though, is mask mandates. But I don't actually mind the mask mandate. At least in the winter, it really keeps my face warm. I wish I'd thought to wear a mask years ago when I was walking in the winter. It's fantastic for that. I used to see people wearing masks on public transit or planes. And I think even once the mandate is lifted, I will probably continue to wear a mask just because when I first moved to Toronto, I seemed to all of a sudden catch a lot of colds and minor flu. And I attributed that to changing my lifestyle where I was regularly taking transit. And it was really crowded. You were uh, smushed in with people at rush hour. I used to try not to touch anything. And then when I got to work, I would immediately wash my hands. But, you know, you're still breathing in shared air at very close range. And it's I will probably always wear a mask on transit from now on. I saw a meme where someone compared wearing a mask to putting up a chain-link fence to keep mosquitoes out of your yard. I, I mean, I know they were joking, but I think a more appropriate comparison would be a mosquito net or screens on your windows or a screen door. We all have screens on our windows in Canada because we get a lot of bugs. A screen or a mosquito net will not guarantee that you have zero mosquitoes, but they'll mitigate the risk somewhat and keep you safe from all the mosquitoes. So I view a mask kind of more like a mosquito net or a screen door. Anyway, one of the reasons people are relieved is that we can get back to business. I miss live performance, I think, more than just about anything. I have someone who listens to this podcast. I listen to hers, too. Her name is Hannah Woolmer. She is a violinist and composer based in the UK. And through Hannah, I discovered a site called Stage It. And Stage It enables musicians to deliver live performances online. They're not recorded. They're actually live. You can also interact with the musicians and the other patrons. I've attended two Stage It shows so far. And I really loved them, although I felt a little weird with all this chat going on during the performance. But because the performer can't hear it, they like it and it's okay. I've been sharing the information with some musicians because even with all the restrictions lifted, there are people who can't get out for all kinds of reasons unrelated to COVID or a lockdown. And people who live in small towns who don't necessarily have access to the variety of live performances that you would have in a big city. So one of the silver linings of these lockdowns is the increase in awareness of all the technologies available. And I think we will see, even though this cannot fully replace a live performance, it provides a wonderful opportunity for musicians to augment their income, play as many live gigs as they can, connect with a community of musicians and music lovers from around the world. And also for people to view live performances when they can't get out, for lots of reasons. 
thank you, science and technology. I've worked in technology for years, and I know it isn't perfect, but boy, it's certainly better than not having it at all. If you heard one of my previous episodes, Fun Friends, Carol and Kelly, her story is fascinating if you haven't heard it. But she is in the process of orchestrating a big move from Canada to Ireland. And as part of that, after she sold her house, she arranged to stay in an Airbnb long term. It turned out to be so filthy that they just couldn't stay there. But Airbnb refused to refund them. I think the deposit was something like $8,000, which is awful, even though they had evidence of the level of disgustingness in this place. Thankfully, their credit card company reimbursed them, and now the credit card company can get that from Airbnb. For a few months, Abe and I rented our spare bedrooms in Toronto out on Airbnb, but it didn't take us long to realize that's really not for us. But way back in the day, before we had Airbnb, I guess it wasn't that long ago, I had a border to make a little bit of extra money. I didn't set out looking for a border, but, you know, all the children had moved out. Catherine was working in Toronto at the time. Joanne was at university in London, Ontario. And I had, not long before that, moved Carrie to Toronto for school. So I was ready to move to Toronto myself. Not as big a move as Ireland, but I had always been active in community theatre in Sarnia, not just with the children, but also for myself. I just, I love it. I love live theater, and I love being a part of live theater, even if I'm the props lady. I had had an agent in Toronto for quite a few years, and my plan was always to move to Toronto someday. But people in Sarnia assumed I was moving to pursue a career in showbiz. I can understand that because I love showbiz. I never made any secret of it. They knew I had an agent. And although I would love a job where I get to be on set regularly and pretend I'm someone else, I certainly had no delusions about the likelihood of actually being able to establish a career that earned me enough money. Toronto real estate is much more expensive than Sarnia, even though Sarnia real estate market has blown up. And it was even expensive back then. I knew I had to continue in my IT career to get by. I I just knew it. I mean, it was great that I didn't have to drive a seven-hour round trip and arrange to work remotely every time I had an audition, but it's not as though I land enough auditions or bookings to justify moving based on that factor alone. Even just this week, I called a friend of mine, and he said to me, Being an actor is the reason you moved to Toronto, isn't it? I'm like, oh, no. I don't understand why people thinking that irritates me so much. Do I care what people think? No. Do I expect people to be mind readers? Absolutely not. The reason I wanted to be here, I was born here. I have family here. My mother always wanted to come home, and she died before she could do it. And I just have always felt connected to this city. When people visit from Sarnia, they'll often say, how can you stand it? The traffic. And uh, I just, it's because they've driven through the traffic that they're not used to into town. We don't drive anywhere unless there's a specific reason. 
everything we could possibly need or want or want to do is within walking or transit distance. I love the city. I love the busyness of it. I love walking down the street to see professional theater after work. Well, I did love it when the theaters were open. Soon, I'll be able to do that again. Even the little things. I I feel like Toronto is a collection of little neighborhoods. I feel like our little neighborhood is almost like a close little small town. I love the local fruit stands around the corner, the unbelievably diverse restaurants. Within walking distance, I can choose between Italian, Thai, sushi, vegan sushi, Eritrean, Ethiopian, Greek, Nicaraguan, Lebanese, vegan. I feel safer in a place with busy foot traffic. I don't know how people can stand living in a place where you pretty much have to get in the car to do anything. But do I say that every time I visit people in Sarnia? Of course not. We're all different, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Anyway, as soon as Carrie left for school, I was ready to sell my house in Sarnia. I had to do it fast because I'd been keeping my eye on the Toronto real estate market for a few years. And even at that time, prices seemed to be consistently increasing by a range of 10% on average annually. I hadn't listed my home. In retrospect, that was probably not the best decision, but that's what I decided at the time. The Sarnia market wasn't hot as it is now, but a local real estate agent approached me to try to get a listing. I showed him around. I had a little chat with him. I said, by all means, if you have someone you think might be interested, give me a call. He called me the next day as I was driving to Toronto for an audition. And when I called him back, he asked me if I would consider taking in a boarder. I had not considered it. And I said to him, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm planning to sell. And if I have a boarder, that person would have to leave on short notice. Well, I have someone in mind who's absolutely fine with that. He's a friend of mine. He's a doctor. Hmm. I'm thinking, why would a doctor want to rent a room in my house? But anyway, he went on. He's new in town and just needs something temporary until he decides where he's going to settle. He has family in the States and likes the idea of being in a border town. If you don't know, and I didn't know till I was told we were moving there at 16, Sarnia is on the border of Port Huron, Michigan, which is maybe an hour or so from Detroit Rock City. Just meet him and see what you think. So I mulled it over, and the next night, the agent and his friend, the doctor, like, I'm supposed to care about that. That was actually a red flag. His friend came over for a chat. So this gentleman was older than I was. I don't know. This would have been about 15 years ago, so he might have been early 60s then. I was still in my 40s, which looks very young to me in retrospect. The three of us had a lovely chat, and we agreed that Heath would move in the next day. But if my children came home to visit, he would have to get a hotel or stay with his friend. He handed me $600 in cash for the first month, which I thought was much too generous for a bedroom. But he wasn't a young, struggling student, so okay. 
I had also been waitressing part-time while the children were away at school. I really didn't want them to graduate with debt. So $600 was a welcome boost to my cash flow and more than I ever made in a month waitressing part-time. I mean, I wasn't a great server. I was kind of a last resort server since I wasn't a career server and I did also have my full-time day job. Carrie's room had bunk beds, so I got Joanne's room ready for Heath. It had a single little girl-style bed with a white headboard and footboard, perfect for a huge grown man. I think it may not have had a footboard, but anyway, I asked him if he wanted to buy himself a full-size bed. Obviously, he was going to move somewhere at some point, and he'd need his own bed anyway, and I'd be happy to move the little girl bed out of the room if so, but he said it was fine. I don't know how that bed could have been comfortable because Heath was a giant. At five foot two, most men do tower over me, but this guy had to be, I don't know, he had to be six foot six or seven. I asked him once, but I forget what he told me. Abe did not live with me at the time, and he happened to be in Calgary on business when all this went down. He was a bit concerned when I told him that a strange man was moving into my house. After all, we can never be sure which ones are dangerous until it's too late. But I figured it was safe because he was friends with a reputable real estate agent in town, and if I ended up dead, Abe would know who to report to the police. I found out later that the night Heath moved in, Abe had tried calling me and calling me and getting a busy signal, which worried him. Because a busy signal shouldn't happen. It should have gone right to voicemail. So, of course, he's in Calgary thinking, what the fuck is going on? Some man has just moved into that house and now I can't get through. He was understandably worried. On the second night, I showed Heath around the kitchen. He never did cook anything for himself, and I certainly didn't for myself or him. So he was on his own there. And we went for a walk so I could show him where the grocery store, etc. was. He seemed a bit surprised that we walked. He was a drive-everywhere kind of guy, but anyway, he went along with it. Then we sat in my TV room and had a great chat over a glass of wine. Heath was a great chatter, and I love very few things more than a great chat. At some point in the evening, he mentioned to me that he had installed a phone in Joanne's room. Installed a phone. Plugged the wire into the jack in the wall. It's like, I installed a lamp in the room. I plugged it in. In those days, we didn't have wireless connections, but his connection to the modem wasn't working. That's when it occurred to me. We had DSL, high-speed internet connections back then, and you had to connect a DSL filter between a phone and the wall jack. We called it a noise reducer or something like that. So I disconnected the phone, or should I say I uninstalled the phone, and voila, the modem could connect. By this time, Abe was getting more and more worried about the persistent busy signal. We weren't the type of people to necessarily talk every day, so it hadn't occurred to me that he might be trying to get in touch. But when he was finally able to get through, he was quite relieved, needless to say. Almost every evening, Heath and I sat down and had a chat, if there wasn't something else going on. I learned a bit about him, 
He was born and raised in Canada, but had lived for years in Nevada. He had 10 children, five from each of his two wives. Holy shit. He had started a cleaning business as a teen and hired workers out and made lots of money at a young age. He was really young when he married his first wife and had his first child. But by the sounds of it, he was making enough money to support his family very well. Neither of his wives had ever had to work outside the home, though they had sometimes chosen to. He was well-traveled. He had invested in real estate. He had been a director of companies. He wasn't a medical doctor, but he did have a doctorate in some field, and I forget what that was. Wife number two was still living in Nevada, but he wanted to reconcile. She's beautiful, he told me, like a movie star. He showed me a picture. She was quite beautiful. They had worked together doing relationship talks. They used to get paid and have audiences to do these talks. I think about relationships and men's and women's roles in marriage. I think that was the gist of it. He loved taking his wife on beautiful trips and out for beautiful dinners. He used to tell me that I deserved beautiful trips and dinners, too. And, of course, my response was just, nah, I'd have to have no debts and money to burn to do that. So I don't think he was saying that to hit on me. He did want to reconcile with his wife. But now you must be thinking, red alert, red alert. But smooth operators are so good at making you feel at ease. I genuinely felt safe, even as I thought, why are you now living in a little girl's bedroom in Sarnia for $600 a month? I was very interested in hearing about that, but I never pried. I just kind of let the conversation flow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the meantime, Abe was home from Calgary and... The two of them met. I think Abe's mind was even put at ease after meeting him in person. He was just warm and personable and gregarious. I'd say maybe a week or two after Heath moved in, one evening during one of our little chat sessions, he looked at me with a serious expression and said he had something to tell me. Okay, I waited. This was it. I was in prison he told me. And when I was released, I was deported. Oh, yeah. I wasn't really that surprised. I remember my mind going to, well, whatever it was, I'm trusting it wasn't violent. And everyone deserves a chance after paying their dues. You're so calm about this, he said. I was worried you'd freak out. And I said, well, at least that explains why you're here. Well, he said, I think a lot of people would freak out. Don't you want to know why? 
I assume you'll tell me if you want to, and obviously I trust you enough to believe it's not rape or murder. And he laughed at that. No, 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 it's nothing violent. Then he launched into the saga of how, after Enron's collapse, the U.S. government started digging into the books of a lot of publicly traded companies looking for similar dodgy accounting practices. And his company was one of the ones found non-compliant. Oh, hang on. Maybe if you're young, you might not know about Enron. It was over 20 years ago. Yeah, over 20 years ago. It was basically a hugely successful company hailed as a great innovator that went tits up in 2001 after fooling regulators with fake holdings, dodgy accounting practices that were apparently legal, hiding mountains of debt. Uh, That shouldn't be legal. Executives ended up being criminally charged, as was the accounting firm that signed off on all the lies. One of the executives actually had to pay back some of the money. Whoa, you don't see that every day. So often when businesses go tits up, they get a bailout. They never pay anything back or seldom pay anything back or pay back pennies on the dollar. They still usually lay off people. And their executives get a big fat raise. And a bonus. And then they complain about inflation. Why don't you trust us? Trickle-down economics. Tax breaks for corporations. But I digress. The fraud in this case was so bad that the U.S. government signed the Sarbanes-Oxley Act into law, or SOX, as we call it, S-O-X, with which I've had the pleasure of helping more than one company comply. Anyway... One could argue that it wasn't violent because no one was physically killed, but wiping out pensions, jobs, and personal savings and investments is devastating for regular people. I know that would be devastating to me. What what would I do? Apparently, Heath had absolutely nothing to do with how this business managed their books or accounting practices. But since he was a director, he was held accountable, charged, and convicted He spent two years in prison and was deported upon release. So why are you telling me this at all? I asked him. He said he just thought he should be honest with me. Then the discussion went down the path of acceptable accounting practices. He clearly believed all of this had been unfair toward him and insisted that the accounting practices had been generally accepted as legal at the time, but Enron changed all that. It wasn't fair for company directors to be targeted. Furthermore, get a shovel and dig this. If the investors had just hung on, they would have made their money back. So they were actually doing the investors a favor by hiding the truth. Ha ha ha. But Heath, I argued, people are entitled to know the truth so they can make an informed decision based on that truth. Even if it's true that those investments would have rebounded, you don't know that for sure. And people deserve the truth about the risk before they hand over their money. And they deserve the truth so that they can cut their losses and get out if they think that's the most prudent thing to do. But it's always been done this way, he insisted. They just changed the rules. And I said, maybe so, but society is always evolving. The rules are always changing, and we're always trying to improve. 
and I gave him an example. It used to be socially acceptable to beat your wife and children. That doesn't mean you can justify continuing to beat them even though society's rules have changed. He agreed that he saw my point. He was a great chatter. I will give him that. We discussed so many topics in the short time he boarded with me. We talked about prison life and some of the interesting characters he met there. CIA corruption. How he was still able to afford his wife's lifestyle while incarcerated. His children, his grandchildren, his daughter, who was shaken so hard by her nanny that she ended up profoundly disabled. The books he had written his belief in God and the roles of man and woman, and my differing perspectives, the demise of his marriages, the second one mostly due to his deportation. One of his grown sons came to visit from Nevada, also a father of five, and he was handsome, gregarious, at least as tall as his father, just such an appealing person. I genuinely liked them both. Heath's wife came to visit with the children, and they stayed in a hotel. I met her at the door once. I think she was curious about this woman her husband was living with. He liked to laugh about how surprised everyone was that there was nothing going on between us, as if. You know what? It just occurred to me this minute that maybe boarding with me was a manipulative ploy to make his wife jealous and take him back. Huh. Well, it didn't work in the end anyway. He moved into an apartment after I sold my house. Abe did some freelance programming work for one of his businesses, and he paid Abe in cash. After that, I periodically kept in touch with him and occasionally popped by for a glass of wine and a chat before I moved to Toronto. Every once in a while, he would send me news via email of a new love in his life, sometimes with pictures. He, I think he, uh, he had to be 70, but still cared deeply about having a beautiful woman on his arm. One of my friends had a few dates with old Heath, but something happened. She never told me exactly what all she said was that he completely freaked her out and she didn't want to talk about it and she never wanted to hear from him again. Then, a couple of years ago, I hadn't heard from him in a few years, I read in the news that he and the son I had met had been charged with fraud. Oh, fuck. Had he orchestrated the fraud that had landed him in jail back then? Probably. Which... I felt was such a shame. I genuinely liked them both. But you see, that is the problem. We want to believe that we can tell if someone is diabolical or dishonest, but the reality is we so often can't. I like to believe I'm careful with who I trust. And I had believed that what happened years ago with Heath had been a one-time thing, that it was genuinely unintentional. These new charges, of course, made me completely question that. I felt betrayed. Even though he stole nothing from me, never once even tried. It's kind of mystifying why. But he lived in my home. We spent so much time chatting about so many things, and yet, I didn't know. I immediately unfollowed and blocked him and have heard nothing from or about him since. I don't know whether they were convicted and I have no desire to find out. That's in the past. 
I don't get a lot of emails from people, but I got one this week asking for advice that I would like to share with you. Dear Julie, I need some of your wise wisdom. I've been working for a healthcare facility for almost eight years, and during that time, I've had one promotion. They've been very accommodating since COVID, and I've been working remotely for the past two years. Okay. I love my job and the flexibility it provides. I do not have any complaints about micromanaging. Well, those three things count a lot in my estimation, because I've certainly had my share of jobs that don't give me that. Everything is perfect except for pay. My only concern is that I feel underpaid and there isn't much opportunity for growth in my current position. I have a bachelor's degree. Recently, there was a position open within the department at a corporate level. I applied for the position and have been waiting almost a month to hear back if I get a second interview. I work with the hiring manager and feel discouraged since they're still accepting job applications for the position. She sent me a follow-up email letting me know that she's still deciding on second interviews. Previously, when the position was open, she knew exactly who, from my team, she wanted to work with her. I can't help but feel like she isn't really interested in giving me the opportunity. I was content with my job prior to applying, but now I just feel discouraged and have been applying to other jobs. Should I withdraw my application for the position? Am I doing the right thing by looking for jobs elsewhere? Well, I emailed Amelia directly because I didn't want to let those feelings of conflict stew. So I just thought, I'll email you. So I hope that was helpful. I mean, loving your job, flexibility, and not being micromanaged are really wonderful aspects of any job, I think. I'm sorry you're worried that the hiring manager isn't interested, and I know that the wait can feel very stressful. So I completely understand why you feel discouraged, but until you hear differently, I think it would be a good idea for you to try to focus on your current job and all the positives, since you have mentioned there are many positives. And I know that's easier said than done. But she hasn't decided not to give you a second interview. That's positive. Maybe she sent you that email to make sure you understood that you're still in the running. She could have said nothing, but she took the time to let you know. That's a positive. There are probably things going on in the hiring manager's world that you have no way of knowing. For all you know, she may have been reprimanded for being obvious about who she wanted last time. I've seen that happen. She could be exceptionally busy with a lot of priorities. She may have been told by someone she reports to that she has to extend the deadline to make sure they get a lot of applicants. Maybe she's not the only one involved in the decision and she's discussing or waiting for other people's input, or it could even be approval. There could be something going on where they're going, well, we're considering cutting the budget for this job, so hold off. You just don't know. So try to focus on the positive because you don't know what's going on at her end and just tell yourself these things when you start feeling discouraged and anxious about it. Definitely do not withdraw your application because then you have no chance of getting the job. Let me tell you, I have a lifetime of no's in my career history, but I am not going to say no to myself. I'll just let other people say no. Now, Let's say you don't get the second interview or you don't get the job, which is a possibility, but don't give up. 
If you don't get the job, it might be a good idea to thank the hiring manager for considering you anyway and ask for her advice on what you can do going forward to prepare for the next opportunity because there will always be other opportunities. And people are often really happy and maybe even a bit flattered to be asked to share their expertise and to be asked for help. By all means, continue looking for other opportunities. I think even if you're super happy in your job, it's always a good idea to keep an eye out for other opportunities. Because let's be honest, the days of working for one company until you retire with a pension are gone. So you should keep an open mind for other options. And a good manager will never view this as a betrayal. And if you do get another job offer for more money, then you have a decision to make. You can resign and take the offer, or you can let your manager know that you have an offer and tell them that you'd prefer to stay if they can match the salary. The reality is sometimes you have to move out to move up. As for your pay... Asking for raises is really, really tough. Statistically, women are more reluctant to ask for raises, and over time, their earnings suffer. And if you walk in and just ask for a raise, they'll sometimes view you as selfish. But if you don't ask, management will assume you're happy with what you're being paid. And they're thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their priorities. And often budget is top of the list of a management priority. So you might be wise to do a little bit of homework and practice how you ask. Document the great things you're doing for your company. Uh, Whenever I deliver results that can be measured, I document them. Maybe I saved money here, saved time there, prevented a catastrophe, I might have thank you emails from others in the company or other types of accolades. Some companies have formal accolade systems. Save all that stuff in an easy-to-find folder. You might think it's nothing at the time, but if you look back and you have an easy summary after six months or a year, you can use that to justify a raise. And if you're uncomfortable with asking or tooting your own horn, that's the other thing. Women tend to feel like, oh, I don't want to brag but use your performance review to bring your accomplishments up. As for the context of asking for a raise, you might want to ask how you can be involved in helping with your boss's priorities or company priorities. Ask your boss what they need from you to get approval for a raise. That's not just asking for a raise. That's kind of putting them in a position where they have to think about it because it's not a yes or no answer. If they say, oh, we don't have the budget, you can say, when will the company have the budget to support a salary increase? The answer still might be, I don't know, but at least you've opened up the discussion and you've made them aware that you're interested in career growth. And of course, that includes better pay. They know that. They like money, too. I'd really love to hear how this goes, if you're willing to let me know. And if you don't get the job... I hope you can take comfort in the knowledge that most of us don't get most jobs we apply for. And I, for one, always feel dumped if it's something I really wanted. But I also always get over it, and so will you. And try to focus on your next move, because one thing you can count on is change. I'm going to add to that a recommendation on learning negotiating skills. I have a Masterclass subscription, and I watched a Masterclass by Christopher Voss, who is an ex-FBI negotiator, and 
His negotiating skills came from situations where the stakes were life and death. He was involved in a lot of hostage negotiations. If you go to blog.blackswanltd.com, you can sign up for their newsletter and get lots of information on day-to-day negotiating in life. The master class included negotiations between a dad and a teen, (laughs) negotiations with business associates, bosses, sales negotiations. He's really knowledgeable, and a lot of what he teaches, I just recommend it. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to share or ask me anything, you can email me at jewelsays at gmail.com. I hope you're able to not let all the horrible news in the world get you down and keep yourself safe and well and happy. Have a good week. Thank you.